This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the last chapter of the series, Sweetheart Killers, and I'm sharing cases where couples killed together. On our last two episodes, we saw how the female of the pair was held less responsible than her male counterpart in their crimes. But this time, we'll learn about a couple who deceived, robbed, and ultimately killed their victims and received the same fate once they were caught. Was this due to the cruelty and severity of their crimes? Perhaps. Was it because the female this time confessed to her terrible deeds? It very well could have contributed to the final outcome. But what intrigues me is the way this female killer was described from day one by the law, the media, and the prosecutors. A femme fatale she was not, and many would wonder what attracted her lover to her in the first place. Join me as I share with you the fascinating story of The Lonely Hearts Killers. June 9, 1949, New York City. There had been a heat wave in the city that summer, and the temperatures on that day were skyrocketing. Even so, the courtroom in the Bronx County Courthouse was packed with spectators and reporters. They were all there to see the couple on trial for murder. The press had dubbed them the Lonely Hearts Killers because they had met their unsuspecting victims through personal ads known as Lonely Hearts columns in newspapers across the U.S. Now the trial was set to begin, and the crowd waited expectantly to see the woman who, it was rumored, had her lover so enthralled he would kill for her. The courtroom spectators strained to see her when the door swung open, only to reveal what had to be described as a plain, middle-aged, plump woman in a simple dress and bright green shoes. Certainly, this couldn't be the infamous Martha Beck, the woman who, along with her exotic Spanish lover, duped unsuspecting lonely women out of their fortunes before taking their lives. As she walked towards the defense table to take her seat, she suddenly veered across the room to her paramour, Raymond Fernandez. She quickly pulled his face into her hands and planted a kiss on his lips before the guards pulled her away. She left a swath of bright red lipstick across his face. Some spectators gasped, while others chuckled. This trial was going to be a doozy. When it was finally her turn to take the stand, Martha was as cool as a cucumber. She told the story of her life, and especially her relationship with Fernandez, in graphic detail. Martha Jewell Seabrook was born in 1919 in Milton, Florida. As a child, Martha suffered from a glandular problem, which caused her weight to balloon, as well as to throw her into puberty at a young age. Martha had a woman's body by the age of 10, and she was teased and harassed by the other children at school. She described her mother as controlling, harsh, and domineering. Martha said her mother would ridicule her for being overweight. When she was a preteen, she reported that her brother molested her. When she told her mother what had happened, she blamed Martha for the attack and beat her. Martha reportedly ran away from home briefly after the molestation occurred. She had an uncle who ran a small hotel in Alabama and decided to make that her destination. In a fascinating twist, Truman Capote lived nearby as a boy and was struggling through his own tragic childhood when he met Martha Beck. Capote, of course, is a celebrated writer and author of one of my very favorite true crime books, the classic In Cold Blood. When Martha ran away, Capote went with her. They were back home by the next day, and Capote reports that he didn't even remember the girl's name, 
until a family member informed him that the accused murderess was that girl you ran away with that summer. After that, Martha and her family moved, and Capote didn't see her again. Martha lived a lonely life. She had no friends and withdrew into a fantasy world. She loved to read the dime store romance novels and true confession-type magazines, and dreamed of the day she might find a man of her own to sweep her off her feet and treat her like a queen. Martha was a good student. She decided she wanted to become a nurse. She attended a nursing school, graduating in 1942 at the top of her class. She found it difficult to find a job, however, because the hospitals she applied to work in viewed her large size as a detriment. They didn't think a 200-plus pound woman would have the stamina to succeed at such a physical job, or perhaps they were just judging her unfairly for being overweight. Whatever the reason, Martha could not land a job in her chosen profession. Instead, she ended up taking a job in a funeral parlor where she prepared the bodies for burial. It was a lonely and isolated job, and Martha withdrew further into fantasy. Martha decided to move to California in 1942. There, she was able to secure a job as a nurse in an army hospital. Young, lonely, and frankly, horny young soldiers were in large supply, and Martha, hoping to land a boyfriend, would spend her nights in bars where the young soldiers would congregate. She was a willing sexual partner, hoping that the encounters would end like her romance novels, in love and marriage. But instead, she became pregnant by one of the soldiers, who had little interest in Martha beyond a one-night stand. When she announced that she was pregnant with his baby, he tried to commit suicide by throwing himself into the nearby bay. It was a huge blow to Martha that the father of her child would prefer death over a life with her. Depressed and ashamed, she returned to Florida to have the baby. But Martha did not want to return home as an unwed mother, so she concocted a story about having met and married a naval officer in California. She purchased a wedding ring to wear and told everyone that her husband would be returning from the Pacific after his tour of duty. Of course, that was impossible, so Martha sent a telegram to herself, announcing that her husband had been killed in action. She was a good actress and became hysterical at the news. The town rallied around the poor war widow and even published a story in the local newspaper about her loss. Martha received a lot of sympathy and attention for her made-up story. She gave birth to a daughter, Willa Dean, in the spring of 1944. When her daughter was a few months old, she met a bus driver named Alfred Beck and became pregnant again. Alfred reluctantly agreed to marry the pregnant Martha, but after only six months of marriage, Alfred filed for divorce. Now, Martha was alone with two young children. She was finally hired as a nurse at the Pensacola Children's Hospital. Martha put her whole heart and soul into her work and was very good at her job. Soon she moved up to the position of nurse superintendent. She was still pining for love, however, and her co-workers seemed to know it. As a joke, they sent her an ad in the mail to join a Lonely Hearts Club. Martha was humiliated. But it must have given her an idea, because she soon placed an ad in Mother Deneen's family club for Lonely Hearts. On the form she completed, she did not include her weight, which reportedly was now over 250 pounds, or the fact that she was the mother of two. Martha waited for some time before she received exactly one response, and as a result, her life would change forever. I just wanted to take a quick moment to give you an opportunity to support the podcast and get some cool stuff in return. We now have a Patreon account. You can support the show with as little as $2 per month 
and get early release episodes, sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, and a free swag pack. Or for less than a cup of coffee or two a month, you can get premium ad-free episodes, live stream events, and free and discounted merchandise. So go to patreon.com slash once upon a crime to join today. Thank you so much for your support. Raymond Martinez Fernandez was born in Hawaii in 1914 to Spanish parents. Raymond was never a healthy child. He was often frail and sickly. When he was three years old, his family moved to Connecticut. When he was still a teen, he left his parents in America to live and work on his uncle's farm in a small village in Spain. Farm work must have agreed with him because Raymond's health improved and he became healthy and strong. By the age of 20, he had met and married a woman named Encarnacion. When World War II began, Fernandez joined Spain's Merchant Marines. He was recruited to serve as a spy for British intelligence during the war, possibly because of his skills as an English speaker. There is no detailed record of his service, but the defense security officer in Gibraltar said that Raymond Fernandez was, quote, entirely loyal to the Allied cause and carried out his duties, which were sometimes difficult and dangerous, extremely well. After the war, he decided to return to America to find work after which time he planned to send for his wife and newborn son. He secured passage on a freighter, but while on board, he was hit in the head by an open steel hatch cover that fractured his skull. The injury was severe, and when the ship docked in December of 1945, he was hospitalized for over three months. The accident left an indentation on his skull and caused possible brain damage. Those who knew him before the accident said he underwent a personality change afterwards. Fernandez previously was known to be personable, calm, and courteous, but now became moody, distant, and had a quick temper. His appearance also changed. He looked pale and thin, and where before he'd had a thick head of black hair, he was now almost bald. He began wearing toupees to hide his hair loss. It is important to note that the head wound Fernandez experienced may have caused trauma or injury to the brain's frontal lobe. An injury to the frontal lobe can have several consequences to brain function and mood depending on the area and severity of the wound. Some of the symptoms reported after an injury of this type include poor judgment, impulsivity, and disinhibition, aggression, outbursts of rage, and violent behavior. One of the first uncharacteristic behaviors occurred when Fernandez was returning home after his release from the hospital. When the ship he was traveling on docked in Mobile, Alabama, he stole a large quantity of clothing from the ship's hold. While passing through customs, the stolen items were found, and Fernandez was arrested. He had no explanation for his behavior. He was sentenced to a year in federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida. His incarceration would lead to another experience that would help determine his final outcome. He had a cellmate in prison who practiced a voodoo religion, and Fernandez soon found himself fascinated and devoted to voodoo practice as well. He began to believe that he could have complete control over women through his use of voodoo spells. He also believed his sexual powers could be greatly enhanced, and he could have virtual sex with women over great distances by placing voodoo powers inside envelopes that he would then send them. After he was released from prison in 1946, Fernandez moved to Brooklyn, New York, to live with his sister. He isolated himself from his family and spent days locked in his room writing letters to women he met through Lonely Hearts Club ads. He wrote romantic letters to woo the lonely and unsuspecting women, and then asked them for a lock of their hair or other personal object. Rather than being a romantic gesture like the women believed, 
Fernandez would then use these objects to cast voodoo spells that he believed would help him gain complete control over them. He would continue to write to the women until he gained their trust, and then he would con them into giving or sending him money, jewelry, or other valuables before disappearing. Fernandez didn't discriminate. The women could be young or old, widowed, divorced, or single, as long as they had valuables he could steal. He seduced and slept with dozens of women before robbing them, and fancied himself to be a skilled lover. That, he would say, was the price they paid for his services. Most of the women, however, didn't report him because they were satisfied with the exchange, but because they were too embarrassed about being conned after placing a Lonely Hearts ad. Fernandez would correspond with dozens of women at a time, and in December of 1947, he sent a letter to a woman in Florida named Martha Seabrook Beck. Martha could hardly believe her luck. She finally got a letter in response to her Lonely Hearts ad, and it was addressed from a Raymond Fernandez who lived in New York City. He said he was a successful businessman in the import-export business. He seemed like a highly educated and well-heeled gentleman. He was a Spaniard, too, which fueled Martha's dreams of meeting and falling in love with an exotic stranger. Fernandez wrote that he lived alone, quote, here in this apartment, much too large for a bachelor, but I hope someday to share it with a wife. After some flowery compliments directed at Martha, he signed off, asking her to please write him back. Martha began a two-week correspondence with Fernandez, writing dozens of letters and exchanging pictures. Martha's picture was a group photo where she was mostly hidden behind her fellow nurses. She wrote to him that the picture, quote, didn't do her justice. Fernandez believed that Martha must have money or own property, since she described herself as a nursing superintendent. After he asked for a lock of her hair, Martha felt that he must really be smitten with her. After a few weeks, Fernandez felt that Martha was ripe for the plucking and told her he was coming by train to Florida to visit her. Martha met him at the station, and if he was surprised by her size or her looks, he didn't let on. She invited him back to her house, where she introduced him to her children and made him dinner. Later that night, they had sex, and Martha felt like the luckiest woman alive. She had a handsome suitor that would save her from her lonely and boring life. After two days together, Martha started talking about marriage, and Fernandez said he needed to get back to his business in New York. He told her he would send for her as soon as he'd made arrangements. Martha took this as a proposal and told everyone she was to be married shortly. She was even thrown a wedding shower by her co-workers. But on the day of the party, she received a letter from Fernandez saying she had misunderstood him. He was not planning to marry her. Martha wrote back, saying that she had attempted suicide. He then relented and allowed her to visit him in New York. She stayed in New York for two weeks before she had to return to her job and children in Florida. But when she returned from her trip, the hospital fired her. She didn't know the reason, although she suspected they were scandalized about her affair with Fernandez. Martha took this as an excuse to pack up herself and her children and show up on her lover's doorstep on January 18, 1948. Fernandez, at first, was not happy at this surprise, but later he would say that there was something comforting about Martha. She provided unconditional love. She would do whatever he said and give him whatever he wanted, no questions asked. However, her children were a problem. Not allowing anything to get in the way of her new love affair, less than a week after arriving, Martha dropped off her four-year-old daughter and three-year-old son at the Salvation Army and never looked back. Fernandez, now believing in her complete loyalty to him, 
told Martha everything about his schemes of conning women out of their money. He also told her about his wife and children in Spain. Martha, instead of being shocked and angered, was honored that he had confided in her and soon began to help him. The first victim they collaborated on was Esther Henney from Pennsylvania. Together they traveled to visit her after Fernandez wrote to Miss Henney and proposed. Martha posed as his sister-in-law. On February 28, 1948, Fernandez and Henney were married in Fairfax, Virginia. They then returned to Fernandez's New York apartment, accompanied, of course, by Martha. Henny said that for a few days, her new groom treated her nicely, but then began to lash out at her when she wouldn't immediately sign over her insurance policies and teacher's pension to him. Frightened, Henny left the apartment, leaving behind her car and hundreds of dollars that Fernandez had cleared out of her accounts. Martha and Fernandez then set out to rob as many women as possible. He married another woman on August 14, 1948, in Illinois. Martha was now presenting herself as Fernandez's sister. They all went home together, of course, and Martha did everything in her power to make sure the marriage was never consummated, including sleeping in the same bed with the new bride, named Myrtle. Myrtle began to complain about Martha, so Fernandez drugged her, after which she became unconscious. Martha and Fernandez were able to get Myrtle on a bus and send her back home to Arkansas, after robbing her of $4,000. The day after she returned home, she died in a Little Rock hospital. Raymond and Martha kept scamming women, but Martha wanted to have a say in which women Fernandez could meet. If they were too young or attractive, she forbid him to do so. Finally, they settled on their next mark, 66-year-old Janet Fay from Albany, New York. Fernandez was now calling himself Charles Martin to work his scams on women. After several weeks of Charles corresponding with Janet Fay, it was arranged that he would travel to Albany on December 30, 1948. Martha and Raymond first checked into a hotel as Mr. and Mrs. Fernandez. The next day, Fernandez went alone to meet Janet Fay, bringing her a bouquet of roses. After a couple of days, Fernandez introduced Martha as his sister. Soon after, Fernandez proposed and Fay accepted. They were to move together to Long Island, where Martha had already rented an apartment. In preparation for her new life in Long Island, Mrs. Fay cleared out her bank accounts, collecting over $6,000 in cash and checks. On January 4, 1949, the trio left Albany for Long Island. Martha set up the living situation so that she and Mrs. Fay would share the bedroom, while Fernandez would sleep on the couch in the living room. They all had dinner together the first evening in the apartment before everyone got ready for bed. Sometime around 3.30 in the morning, Mrs. Fay left the bedroom and went into the living room where her intended groom was sleeping. Fernandez went into the bedroom and woke up Martha to tell her to get Mrs. Fay to go back to bed. Why he did this is puzzling. He had seduced and slept with many women he was trying to scam in the past, but it seems he might have been worried about Martha's reaction if he were to have a physical relationship with Mrs. Fay under her nose. He obviously knew Martha was doing everything to keep him from becoming physical with any of the women she was helping him to scam. Fernandez then went into the bathroom while Martha was to handle the situation with Mrs. Fay. In Martha's first confession to police, she said that when she entered the living room, she saw Mrs. Fay nude lying on the couch. She yelled at her, What do you think you are doing? After which Mrs. Fay quickly threw her nightgown back on. Martha admits that she was burning up with jealousy and rage and called her a bitch. She accuses Mrs. Fay of slapping her, and after that, Martha says she doesn't remember what happened. The next thing she remembered was Fernandez shaking her by the shoulders and saying, Martha, what have you done? 
she became aware of Mrs. Fay at her feet, slumped over a suitcase. She said there was blood everywhere. An autopsy would later determine that Mrs. Fay had been bludgeoned over the head, most likely with a hammer. Mrs. Fay was still alive, and both Fernandez and Martha admit that they agreed that they would have to kill her. Fernandez then killed her by wrapping a scarf around her neck and used the hammer as a tourniquet to strangle her until she was dead. The next day, they took Mrs. Fay's body and placed it in a large trunk, which they then asked Raymond's unwitting sister to store in her basement. Eleven days later, they retrieved it and buried it in the cellar of a home they had rented in Ozone Park, Long Island. They then began cashing checks drawn from Janet Fay's account and typed letters they sent to her family that said, I'm having the time of my life. I never felt happier. I soon will be Mrs. Martin and will go to Florida. But Mrs. Fay's family knew that she could not type and didn't own a typewriter. They called the police. Martha and Raymond had already fled New York. They were now on their way to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Fernandez had been corresponding with a young widow named Delphine Downing. Downing had a two-year-old daughter named Rennell. Fernandez told her he'd be coming to visit her and would be bringing his sister, Martha. They arrived in January of 1949. At first, all was going well for Martha and Raymond. Raymond won over the widow and her young daughter and acted thrilled to become a husband to Delphine and a father to Rennell. Downing was equally happy that a successful, handsome man was not only interested in her, but also in helping her raise her child. The couple stayed with Mrs. Downing and Rennell for almost a month. During this time, Fernandez began sleeping with Mrs. Downing, who was young and attractive. Martha was seething with anger, but continued to play her part as Fernandez's sister. She was just hoping they could hurry up and get the money they needed from Downing to make it to Alaska where she and Fernandez were planning to start a new life together. But as I mentioned earlier, Fernandez had taken to wearing hair pieces to cover his baldness. One day, Mrs. Downing walked in on him in the bathroom and saw him without his toupee. She was shocked and angry and began calling him a liar and a fraud. She didn't know the half of it. He tried to sweet-talk her, but she wasn't having it. Martha pretended like she was commiserating with Mrs. Downing and gave her some sleeping pills to help her calm down. She was soon unconscious. Young Raynell, probably sensing something was wrong with her mother, began to cry. Martha grabbed her and choked her almost into unconsciousness. The couple realized that if Downing came to and saw her daughter with bruises all over her neck, there would be hell to pay. They decided they had to get rid of her. Fernandez grabbed a handgun he had found in the house and shot Downing in the head, killing her. More shocking still, Raynell was still in the room and witnessed her mother's murder. They buried the dead woman in the basement of the house and covered it over with cement. They began making plans to get away, but first they spent time cashing checks from Mrs. Downing's accounts and looting the house for valuables. At first, they planned to take Rennell with them, but she would not stop crying for her mother and refused to eat. Fernandez finally told Martha to get rid of the girl. Martha finally resisted following Fernandez's orders, at first saying she couldn't do it, but she knew she had no choice. She had given up everything, including her own children, and killed for him, and she would do anything not to lose him. She and Fernandez carried the crying child to a metal tub in the basement. Martha held her underwater until she drowned. Fernandez then buried her next to her mother. While you'd think Martha and Raymond would make a quick exit out of town— They did not. 
Instead, they stayed another day in the home and decided to go to the movies. Meanwhile, suspicious neighbors who had not seen Delphine Downing and her daughter for several days called the police. When Martha and Raymond returned from the movies and began packing up to leave, there was a knock at the door. The police had arrived, and Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez were taken in for questioning. Before long, they began to talk. They didn't even ask for an attorney. At the end of their 73-page confession, the district attorney was left amazed by the tawdry tale of greed, lust, and murder that he heard. They didn't just confess to the murders of Delphine and Raynell Downing in Michigan, but also to the murder of Janet Fay in New York as well. The couple knew that there was no death penalty in the state of Michigan, so they were willing to confess and face the consequences there instead of being extradited back to New York. But once the story broke about the murderous couple, who had killed lonely women and even murdered a small child, the public called for their heads. A few days after giving their full confession in Michigan, New York's Governor Thomas Dewey cut a deal with the prosecutors in Michigan. Michigan would waive their criminal charges against the pair and permit New York to extradite them to be tried there for the murder of Janet Fay. If they were found guilty, they could be executed by electric chair. Now the pair sat in the courtroom being tried for the murder of Janet Fay. First, Fernandez took the stand and recanted the confession he had given in Michigan. He said that he'd only confessed to save his darling Martha. He thought they would both be accused and said he could take it, meaning prison, better than she could. Martha and Fernandez continued to give each other loving looks throughout the trial. Martha even burst out angrily at the prosecutor when she felt he was badgering her boyfriend as he testified. Mr. Fernandez is not deaf, she yelled from her seat. Fernandez gave detailed accounts about his sexual encounters with the victims, as well as Martha. He told a story that was plastered all over the newspapers about a three-way strip poker game he'd had with Martha and Esther Henney. The final hand determined who got to sleep with him that night, he said. Martha won. Now it was Martha's turn to take the stand. She told tearfully about her terrible childhood and her experiences being dominated by her mother, sexually abused by her brother, and teased by her classmates. She told of the lonely life she'd had before she met Fernandez, how she'd been impregnated and abandoned by two men. When she told how she had abandoned her two children at the Salvation Army, she broke down in tears and a recess had to be called. But her recorded confession to the police and the happiness she expressed at being Fernandez's partner in crime left no room for sympathy from the jurors. She giggled at the memory of her and Fernandez going through the pictures of the old ladies who wrote to him, thinking he loved and wanted to marry them. She seemed proud at how easily her lover was able to deceive the lonely women. Martha also went into detail about what the prosecution called her abnormal sexual relationship with Fernandez. While some, mostly women, felt the need to leave the courtroom during this part of her testimony, so many people tried to push into the court building to hear the sordid details that two dozen police officers had to be called in to keep order. Martha described sex acts that were connected to the so-called voodoo practices that Fernandez adhered to. When asked specifically about her love for the accused, Martha said, We loved each other, and I consider it absolutely sacred. You referred to the lovemaking as abnormal, but the love I had for Fernandez, nothing is abnormal. She then said, A request from Mr. Fernandez to me is a command. I loved him enough to do anything he asked me to. The trial lasted for 44 days and finally went to the jury on August 18, 1949. They didn't begin deliberations until 9.45 p.m. and worked through the night to reach a verdict. 
Most believed that Fernandez would be held responsible for the murders, with Martha most likely receiving a lesser charge. The jury came back with their decision at 8.30 a.m. the next morning. Thinking it would be several hours or even a day before a decision was handed down, there were almost no spectators in the courtroom when Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez were found guilty of first-degree murder. Four days later, Judge Ferdinand Pecora sentenced them both to die in the electric chair. The execution date was scheduled for October 10th of that year. Both were immediately sent to Sing Sing's death row to await their execution. Some now look back and believe Martha Beck received such a harsh sentence due to a simple fact. Of course, the crimes were heinous, and Martha was obviously culpable for these terrible acts. The fact that she confessed in such gruesome detail did her no favors either. After telling how she had come to and realized Janet Faye's body was laying at her feet, she would say, I can still hear it. The blood was dripping, 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 and the sound of it just sounded like it could be heard all over the house. And the fact that one of the victims she admitted to killing was a two-year-old child could certainly have contributed to Martha receiving the death penalty. But there have been many female murderers before and since who have taken part in equally horrifying crimes who have not been sentenced to death. What is clear from the history of how the death penalty has been applied, at least before modern times, is that women who were seen as either young and or attractive were often exempted from this fate. Martha was immediately described in less than glowing terms by both the law and the media. Together, Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez were given the colorful moniker, the Lonely Hearts Killers. But Martha herself was continually described as obese, homely, rotund, fat, simpering, unattractive, and her weight was exaggerated, reported as over 300 pounds. At her arrest, she weighed approximately 233 pounds. Martha was 30 years old at the time of the arrest, but looked a little older. The fact that she was seen as middle-aged, unattractive, and overweight were all things that contributed to the bias she received, making it easier to sentence her to the ultimate punishment. While on death row, the media circus surrounding the Lonely Hearts killers continued. Martha and Raymond, at first, continued to profess their undying love for each other. But before long, rumors emerged that Martha was having a sexual relationship with a prison guard. Martha called the rumors asinine and ridiculous, but Fernandez, believing the story, asked to be put immediately to death so that he wouldn't have to endure his continued mental torment and, quote, end his living death. Quite dramatic, yes, but the appeals continued. Martha, it seems, began to tire of her lover's histrionics and belittled him, writing to her mother, Oh yes, he's brave when it comes to talk and hurting others. He can kill without batting an eyelash but to hurt himself, he'll never do it. It takes a man to kill himself, not a sniveling, low-down, double-crossing, lying rat like him. But Fernandez was keeping a secret from Martha. The whole time on death row, he had been writing gushing letters to Encarnacion, his wife in Spain. Kisses and hugs to the children, and you receive a million kisses and hugs from the one who will always have you until the last second of my life, he wrote. Finally, all appeals were exhausted, and the execution date was set for March 8, 1951. Martha and Raymond would both be executed on the same day, as well as two other condemned prisoners. Fifty-two witnesses were approved to be present at the execution, including families of the victims, law enforcement, and court officials, as well as members of the media. Martha and Raymond had reconciled since receiving their final execution date 
And now, once again, as the final countdown began, professed their undying love for each other. For their last meals, Martha requested fried chicken, no wings, french fries, and a lettuce and tomato salad. Fernandez ordered an onion omelet, french fries, chocolate, and a Cuban cigar. Martha seemed stoic on her last day, but Fernandez was increasingly nervous, confiding to his guards that he might not hold up under the pressure. Martha wrote one last note that was delivered to Fernandez, where she proclaimed her love. Fernandez then said, The news brought to me that Martha loves me is the best I've had in years. Now I'm ready to die. So tonight, I'll die like a man. At 11 p.m., the first two convicts, John King and Richard Power, both 22, were executed for the murder of an airline clerk in 1950. Next, it was Fernandez's turn, but he did not die like a man. He was panicked and paralyzed with fear and had to be carried to the chair. Minutes later, he was dead. Martha went last. Before she was led from her cell, she made a final statement. What does it matter who is to blame, she said. My story is a love story, but only those tortured with love can understand what I mean. I was pictured as a fat, unfeeling woman. I am not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. In the history of the world, how many crimes have been attributed to love? She was then led to the death chamber. She walked in on her own two feet, escorted by a matron. The matron began to weep as she applied the straps to Martha. Martha remained calm. She mouthed the words, so long, and the switch was pulled. She was pronounced dead at 11.24 p.m. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I want to give a quick shout out to Podcast 1289. If you like podcasts that cover the paranormal and conspiracies along with true crime, check them out. They were our 1500th Twitter follower, so I'm sending them a heartfelt thank you, as well as an OUAC prize pack. Congratulations, guys, and thanks for following the podcast. There are still a couple of prize packs up for grabs if you become our 1000th Facebook follower or our 500th Instagram follower. You can find links to our social media in the show notes or at truecrimepodcast.com. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. I hope you'll join me next time as I launch a brand new series that you won't want to miss. So subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.